You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. And while you're finding Luke chapter 7, verse 11 is where we'll start, I'm going to make a confession to you. And my confession is this, please do not judge me, but I am a fan of the television show The Walking Dead. That's right. Now, if you're not familiar with this long-running program, let me give you the gist of the plot. Our planet has been overrun by a plague that killed most of the population and turned them into zombies. And a small group of diverse people led by a former police officer named Rick Grimes endeavor to survive and ultimately overcome this post-apocalyptic world. Forced into new living arrangements, constantly facing threats and enduring frequent losses, they try and often fail to achieve stability and to build community together. Ironically, The repeated danger they face often comes not from the zombies they must avoid, but the neighbors they encounter along the way, the other survivors around them. Now, I want to be clear as I've given you this brief snapshot of this show, I am not recommending this show to you. Okay, that's all live stream. I am not recommending this show to you. The Walking Dead is a dark, extremely violent, and often heart-wrenching story. So you may say, then why do you watch it? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I continue to watch it because I find it resonates with the human condition apart from God. In many ways, the title of the show, The Walking Dead, isn't a reference to the zombies. It's a reference to those who are left in a fallen world facing the inevitability of their own demise. And for me, the story of a people forced out of paradise Wandering in exile in search of a home is not a new story, is it? In our faith tradition, it is the story. So I share all of this with you. I make this confession because today as we continue our Lenten series, and if you haven't been with us during the season of Lent, we're in the midst of a series called Go and Do Likewise, Loving Our Neighbor Like Jesus. And I've given you this whole buildup because the walking dead are very much front and center in today's story. Here in this brief vignette from the Gospel of Luke, a fact, in fact, a story that's only recorded by Luke, Jesus comes upon a people shrouded in death. And what happens next? What Jesus does surprises everyone. And if we read along carefully, will surprise us as well. It will surprise us in terms of what we can learn about how to engage the people around us like Jesus. So I invite you, if you have those Bibles open, to hear from the Gospel of Luke Chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, And the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. 
They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to preach this sermon a little differently than I've been preaching in the last couple of weeks. Um, this is a sermon, I'm going to let you know, it. that's going to really come in layers Layers that we're going to continue to pull back. Uh, normally in the last couple of weeks, I often will kind of say, here are the kind of the three things I want us to catch in this story. And this doesn't really fit for this one. This is one that we're going to have to gradually kind of peel back in order to get to the red hot center. And so it's going to be a little different than what you're used to. But for those of you who want to be able to track where I'm going, let me give you a quick snapshot of what we're going to do. What I'm going to do first is I'm going to help us to examine this story more closely in order to hear the gospel in it. And then the second thing I'm going to do after I've set that out for you is I'm going to clarify what this story is primarily about and what it's not. And then third, hopefully that's going to take us to a place where we can look at this story from another angle in order to glean from Jesus how to love our neighbor like he does. Now again, for some of you, you're going to have to really pay attention but if, I'm, if I lose you somewhere along the way, when we get to that red-hot center, I'll make it clear to you. So don't worry if you can't keep up with me. But I'll do my best not to lose you. First, let's set the scene. And I think that's so important, I think, for us to immerse ourselves in this story, to really be there, not just to look, look at it from a distance. So as we think about what we just read, what I want you to imagine is this, what, exactly what Luke describes. Jesus has a crowd following him. Okay, he's got this crowd because back in Capernaum, a whole bunch of people just witnessed Jesus cure a Roman centurion slave without lifting a finger. And in the aftermath of this miracle, they're tagging along in celebration, excitedly talking together, and in earnest to see what Jesus will do next. But then suddenly, as they turn a corner, as they arrive at the outskirts of a place called Nain, a village in Galilee about nine miles from Nazareth, Jesus raises his hand and they all stop. This happy-go-lucky crowd has run headlong into a devastating scene. Joy collides with grief as they come upon a large funeral procession. Wailing cries from mourners making their way out of town through its gates toward the cemetery just beyond silence the boisterous chatter of Jesus and his companions. Jewish, Jewish burials, you see, were always outside the city, nearby but just beyond its walls, close enough to honor and remember the deceased, but not close enough to contaminate. And today, as you heard, a mother prepares to bury her son. We don't know how this young man died, if his passing was the result of a long, drawn-out illness or an unexpected accident. No matter how he died, we can be certain the weight of his mother's grief was still fresh and agonizingly new. Because again, you see in Jewish custom, the dead were prepared and buried very soon after death. With the oppressive heat in the Middle East, you dare not wait an extra day before putting the dead to rest. So if you think about it, therefore, this mother may have only had several hours to process the fact that her son had died. More than likely, this funeral was taking place on the same day as her boy's death. And it's understandable then that all that she can do is weep. The tears endlessly stream down her face. He was her firstborn and only child. 
and to boot, she is a widow. This woman has walked through the valley of the shadow of death before when she buried her husband, and now with the loss of her only child, her son, all she has left is her grief. When you picture this scene, you should understand that the boy's mother would be leading this funeral procession. Next to or behind her would be other female relatives or friends. Then you would see the funeral bier itself, a plank on which the body lay in regular clothes or perhaps wrapped in a shroud. And behind the bier would come the male relatives and friends, followed by the hired musicians, the professional mourners, and the rest of the community. Before this large parade, Jesus' subdued entourage respectfully stands aside to let the funeral proceed. But maybe you notice that Jesus doesn't follow suit. He doesn't simply stand by and let this sad procession pass. Because you see, Jesus isn't a fan of funerals. He never has been. He never will be. Jesus has heard, Luke tells us, this mother's crying. Deeply moved by her tears, Jesus can't help himself. Whatever he was on his way to do no longer seems all that important. And so Jesus steps forward into the heart of this black parade to interrupt the processional, by the way, a major social faux pas. And then he says something very odd and unexpected. Approaching this grieving woman, Jesus says, do not cry. And if you can think of it, if you're in this scene with me, given the volume of all the mourners, he probably had to repeat himself, do not cry. Do not cry. Do not cry. Is this a word of rebuke against the essential part of the grieving process by Jesus? No. Do not cry. Is this some command for all followers of Jesus to never weep at funerals, to be happy all the time? No. Do not cry. It's a word of encouragement. It's a word of encouragement because you see, moments like these are why Jesus came into the world to deal with what Paul refers to as the last enemy. Do not cry. Jesus is assuring the mother of this child, death will not get the last word. Jesus is about to give life to this woman, life to this woman through her son. And so Jesus reaches out and touches the funeral bier. He does not hesitate to touch the coffin, even though it will make him ceremonially unclean. The pallbearers, you heard it, freeze in place. Everyone stops as Jesus puts his hand on the casket. In the middle of that dusty little country road, you could hear a pin drop as the gaping yawn of the power of death gets swallowed by the words of the living God. All those gathered heard Jesus say, young man, I say to you, get up. But what they saw brought them to their knees in wonder and praise. They saw a dead man sit up and heard him speak. They watched a son be placed in his mother's arms as if he were being born for the first time. This is the story. We have immersed ourselves in it. And the thing is, whether we read this story, whether we hear it, whether we picture it, we always focus on this story being about Jesus raising this boy from the dead. 
If you have your Bible still open, and it's fine if you don't, even the title that's given to this story, and what I mean by the title is that little subheading before you get to it that wasn't written by Luke. Luke didn't create these titles. Later compilers of our Bible did, and the person who compiled our Bible even thought the subheading says that the point of this encounter is about the raising of this boy from the dead. My Bible says Jesus raises a widow's son. But the thing is, there's more to this story. Before we get there, something we need to understand is that the real truth of this, counter, of this encounter is much like last week. And if you weren't with us last week, we looked at John chapter 5, where we looked at the healing of a man at the pool of Bethsaida. And last week, we, one of the things we laid out for, for, for ourselves is understanding that that story in John chapter 5 was not fundamentally about the physical healing of the crippled man. Together, we recognize that not everyone at the pool of Bethsaida was physically cured that day. But the physical healing of the one man who could not walk pointed to the inevitable promised restoration of all who were in Christ that they will experience on the other side of this life. In the same way here, to be clear, what Jesus does outside the village of Nain isn't some kind of promise that we all get a free pass in escaping the human condition. This is a hard story for us to read because the truth is, most stories about death, physical death, are not like this. Corpses don't come back to life. Those we love who have died are not miraculously reunited with us on this side of the grave. My friends, the point of this story is not to, for us to forget that part of living in a broken world part of being a part of a creation that longs for its redemption, part of these bodies, minds, and souls of ours that are corrupted by sin, part of what it means to live in a broken world is to face death. The end of life as we know it. This story needs to be understood properly. You scan through the gospel accounts, and you'll notice Jesus didn't go around raising up everybody who died. In fact, it only happens three times in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you were curious where those three times are, it's here. It's Jairus' daughter, and it's Lazarus. That's it. And let's think about those three occurrences where Jesus brings people back from the dead. Those three people I just mentioned, whom Jesus raised from being flatlined, came back to life only to still face death another day. Their physical death was delayed, but not eliminated altogether. Another way of putting this, if you're with me, is they were resuscitated, not resurrected. They were resuscitated, not resurrected. What's the difference? Well, according to the medical dictionary, resuscitation is restoration to life or consciousness of one apparently dead or whose respirations had ceased. In other words, resuscitation is resumption of life as it was. Resuscitation is resumption of life as it was. Resurrection from death, however, is a mystery far more ultimate and profound than what happens to this boy. Because resurrection is the raising of the dead into new life. New life. Three times, in other words, Jesus raises the dead, not so we will place our hope in some kind of temporary reprieve. Jesus' reason for coming is, wasn't to give us all bonus time, a few extra decades of earthly existence. 
Three times Jesus raises the dead as a sign of what he came to do, to assure us he could do it, to reverse the curse and to eclipse the shadow of death, to introduce us not to life as we've known it, but to introduce us into life as it was intended to be. Stories like these are here to reinforce that in Christ, death is not the end. Death is not the final or ultimate reality for us. So what I want you to understand, how I want you to hear the gospel in this story is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, according to this story and stories like it, isn't about getting a little more time. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't about looking for an encore. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about being given greater life. Life not determined by the clock or the calendar, but life everlasting offered to us by love that is immortal. Love that is stronger than death. And this is so important we understand the gospel in this story because this kind of life is the kind of life we have to offer to our neighbors. Abundant life. Life that's not about running out of time, but life that's about knowing you have an eternity before you. Life that's not about preparing for the end, but life that's about anticipating with each day the best that's yet to come. To really draw this out for you, for me, what I see here is, do you know who truly gets offered this kind of life that I've just described to you in this story? Who's the one who truly gets offered this kind of life? It's not the son. It's the mother. It's the widow. I hinted at this earlier when I made the statement. You probably didn't even notice it. I said this. I said, Jesus gave life to this woman. Jesus gave life to this woman, I said, through her son. The mother the widow is the neighbor Jesus truly rescues in this story. Even more than this being about her son, this encounter is about her. And so now we're going to briefly look at this story from another perspective so you can see it. When we think about this scene again, we put ourselves back in it. The truth is, as we're there again, the truth is this is a funeral procession with two dead people. Yes, there's the son lying dead on the funeral bier, but there's also the mother of this boy. Make no mistake, in this moment, before Jesus acts like he does, she's all but dead as well. And I'm not just talking about the fact that she's dying from having to bury her child. No parent should have to endure that. What I'm referring to is her socioeconomic condition. This woman... This widow without a husband is laying to rest her only child, a son. Beyond her parental anguish, which is great, his death is a catastrophe for her. In that day and age, without a husband and without a son, this woman is left without any legal basis for inheritance. She cannot own property. She cannot earn income with no one to care for her and no means to support herself, with no legal recognition or rights. Think about this. Her living situation has, in a 24-hour period, become precarious. Just like her son, who is about to be buried outside the walls of the village, this woman is becoming isolated from her community, left solely dependent upon the charity of others just to survive. This woman likely feared her days were numbered. She grieves for her loss, yes. But she grieves, my friends, as the walking dead. 
And notice in this story, it's to this woman and not her son whom Jesus responds. Jesus speaks to her. Jesus does what he does because he recognizes this woman's passage from protection to vulnerability, from being and belonging to becoming forgotten and seemingly non-existent. Hurting, bereaved, this woman has lost both a husband and a son, and now in a culture that values both, she has become a lost soul. And so in response, Jesus gives this woman, his neighbor, life resurrection life. Jesus doesn't just give this woman her child back. Raising her child is not simply about mother and son returning to life, that the, the life they once held dear. Jesus is resurrecting this woman. He is offering her a glimpse into life that is more abundant, into life that is everlasting. Jesus is inviting her along with her son to rise up, to get up along with her child, to enter into the newness of life where death may pause it but cannot steal it. The newness of a life where love turns every ending into another beginning. My friends, this is the gospel, and this is the life that Jesus wants for us. Jesus wants life for us, the good life, the best life, eternal life. And this is, again, one of those stories where we learn God's desire for us to have this kind of life. God's love for us is so radical, so revolutionary, so relentless, that in Christ, he is willing to cross every boundary. He is willing to break all of the rules. He is willing to bridge any divide to offer this kind of life to you and to me. But here it is. In doing so, Jesus desires calls us to share this kind of life with others, to love our neighbors by giving them resurrection life. Now, you may go, well, I don't know what to do with that because I don't know how to raise people from the dead. And you're absolutely right. We may not be able to physically raise people from the dead. But what we can do is we can align ourselves with those things that open the door to life for people. We can align ourselves with those things that open the door to the kind of life Jesus offers. Rather than siding with or reflecting those things, those postures, you know, those words, those actions that allow death to continue to be the status quo in this world. You look around and what I'm about to tell you, you know it. You look around and you can be breathing, but you can still be lifeless. The walking dead are not just the fantasy of a comic book or a TV show. The dearly departed can be right in front of us, wasting away and being consumed by their pain if we have eyes to see. How many people, ask yourself, how many people around us, how many of our neighbors are just barely surviving? How many? How many of them are just barely surviving and it's a matter of economics, right? They wrestle to make ends meet. They can't afford to take tomorrow for granted because there's no guarantee there is a tomorrow. Death threatens them over simple necessities that no one on this planet should be without. A roof over their heads, food on their table, clothing, clean water, vaccines. How many of our neighbors are just barely surviving for economic reasons? How many of our neighbors 
are barely surviving. We look at them and we have neighbors around us and something has died inside of them. Something has died inside of them because of a loss. Maybe it's the absence of a loved one. Maybe it's a relationship from which they become divorced. Maybe it's the complete breakdown of one of their most basic faculties, things that you and I take for granted, right? They can't see anymore. They can't hear anymore. They can't remember anymore. They don't have the ability to walk on their own. They can't breathe on their own. And whether it's the loss of a loved one, a divorced relationship, or the loss of some part of themselves, overwhelmed by their grief, they struggle to face each day as it comes to engage basic functions. It's hard just to get out of bed, to eat, to sleep, or even just get out of the house. How many of our neighbors are barely surviving? How many of our neighbors are barely surviving, but on the surface, they look fine? On the surface, they appear to be fine, right? But they're just going through the motions. You know what I'm about to say. Lots of people around us are functional, right? But functional doesn't mean you're living. There are lots of neighbors around us who have their rituals and their routines, but that's about all they've got. Their rituals and their routines, sometimes for them, the reason why that's all they are, their life is just about their ritual and their routine, is because they've just become apathetic. They become apathetic because they've experienced the death of a dream and they've given up on themselves. They become apathetic because maybe they've had some tremendous failure that has led others to give up on them. Or maybe we just go through the motions, maybe we just get by because we're really just trying to not deal with. It's so painful, it's so raw that we've experienced abuse at the hands of another. Some people are carrying abuse that they've never been able to express, that they've never been able to give a voice to. And some are just going through the motions because you know what? They have a self-imposed addiction. And sometimes those two things are related. Because of the abuse they've experienced, they've taken on an addiction as a way to cope, you know? Just so they can get by. They're doing what they can to forget, to numb the pain. They smile and they put on a brave face, but inside it's eating them away. Beloved, how many of our neighbors around us are barely surviving. How many of our neighbors, if we look closely, if we pay attention, it doesn't take much to see, have become a far echo of their former selves. They're living like a ghost. They're the walking dead. You can be living. You can be making a living, but not experiencing much of a life. And my friends, we have neighbors and we have neighborhoods all around us whose existence is more like a walking funeral than the reflection of the kind of life Jesus came for all to experience. We live in a world, more and more it feels like it's overwhelmed by death. The death of civility, the death of kindness, the death of gentleness, the death of justice, the death of joy. And my friends, in the midst of this darkness that seems to be overtaking our world, we who follow Jesus have been called to give life, resurrection life to our neighbors. We are the body of Christ. That is the risen Jesus. And the tongues of Pentecostal fire have been settled on our heads and in our hearts. We have been given the voice of the Spirit of the living God to bless others, to call the dead back to life, to resurrect dead hopes and dead dreams, to resurrect dead souls, dead marriages, dead families, dead communities, 
But we can only speak. We can only express this word of life if we ourselves have been raised up. If the forgiveness, grace, and love that Christ offers you has merely resuscitated you, returned you to the life that you once knew, then you haven't experienced resurrection because resurrection isn't going back to life the way it was. That's resuscitation. Resurrection is entering into the new life that Christ has for you, the full life, the abundant life, a new way of thinking, acting, and living, kingdom living. My friend, that voice, that life, You've been given it. We've been given it. How do we find that voice that we have been given, that the Lord has empowered us to speak the voice of Christ to those in need? How do we find it to speak to a broken and longing world? We go back to the story. And keeping our eyes on Jesus in this encounter, what do we see? From where does Jesus' voice come from? If your Bible's still open and it's fine, if it's not, it's right there in verse 13. And it's a word. Here's the red hot center of this sermon. Where does Jesus' voice come from? Compassion. The NIV, if you do have your Bible open, awfully translates the original word here in Greek. The NIV reads, his heart went out to her. But the word is compassion. And in fact, if you step back and think about it, many, think about this, many of the New Testament stories we read about Jesus interacting with others, this is the word that's used. Jesus is moved with compassion for his neighbor. It's used in the parable of the Good Samaritan, expressing what prompts the Samaritan to stop and help the man lying dead on the side of the road. It's also used in the parable of the prodigal son to articulate why the father comes running against custom and in lowering his social position towards his wayward son. And here's the thing when you look at compassion. Biblically, compassion is not the same thing as pity, it's not the same thing as sympathy, and it's not the same thing as empathy. Biblically, compassion is not pity, sympathy, or empathy. Here's the difference. Pity, sympathy, and empathy are things that you feel. Biblically, compassion is something that you do. In fact, the original Greek word is splagnitsma. It's a great word, splagnitsma. I do better, John, I get it that time? And the original Greek word, splagnitsma, you can tell I like saying it, right? Refers to this deep, visceral, gut-level response related to one's bowels. To the organs of the body, like the heart, the lungs, the intestines, and the womb. And, and what all these parts of the body, the, hung, the heart, the lungs, the intestines, and the womb have in common is they all swell up. And as they swell up, they must expel something in order to keep functioning properly. So if you take that understanding and now take the use of that word as Luke applies it here, what he's describing, what causes Jesus to act, the picture he invokes is of Christ being filled up, swelling up with such love for this woman, with such a desire to intercede on her behalf. It compels Jesus to bless her, to save her. The compassion of Christ leads to the action of Jesus towards his neighbor. And it's the same thing. It's the compassion of Christ in us that leads us to act like Jesus, to love like Jesus, our neighbor. I have to also point this out. If you were with us last week, here we go again. Because just like last week, if you read this story carefully, notice something. Just like last week, there is no particular request for help given here. And there is also no specific mention of faith. 
Once again, what we witness here, like we did last week, is a generous act of undeserved mercy and unearned grace. This woman does not request assistance. Her son is dead. She's long since resigned herself to her grief. And nowhere does this woman demonstrate any recognition of who Jesus is, let alone faith in him as her Lord and Savior. No one in this town seems to know who Jesus is either because they praise God for a great prophet and nothing more. Jesus comes across a neighbor who is walking dead. She doesn't ask for help. She doesn't display any faith. And yet death moves God to do something. Love that is stronger than death wells up inside Jesus until it has to come out. It must be expressed. It must silence death. Beloved, death moves God to do something. Does it move us? Does it move us? Compassion born of love for his neighbor leads Jesus to give life. What are we giving our neighbors? What are we giving our neighbors? What wells up inside of us? Our love for others? Christ's love for others? Or what wells up inside of us? Our disdain for those who are needy? Our condescension towards those who just can't seem to help themselves? What wells up inside of us? Our love for others, Christ's love for others, or our impatience, our frustration, born of compassion fatigue. Man, get over it. Get a life. Am I my brother or sister's keeper? Don't I have problems of my own? Beloved, following Jesus, loving our neighbors like Jesus is about having compassion towards them. Where there is no fatigue Loving our neighbors like Jesus is having compassion towards our neighbors, not becoming cynical or jaded. And my God, I'm beating this drum hard today, but we are in a world that is becoming more and more cynical and jaded. And I'm not going to pull any punches to say that I think this is the enemy's work. The enemy wants us to be cynical and jaded. The enemy wants us to give up. The enemy wants us to fight with each other. The enemy wants us to stop caring because when you stop caring, you stop living. You can tell yourself you've still got a pulse. You can tell yourself you're still moving, but when you stop caring, you stop living and you are only this much closer to becoming the walking dead yourself. To love our neighbors like Jesus, we can't isolate ourselves. We can't walk on the other side of the road. To love our neighbors like Jesus, like Christ, led by the Spirit of the Lord that's upon us, we have to be willing to be moved. To reach out and touch the beers of those like this widow who are the walking dead. To have compassion like Jesus, like Christ, is to risk exposure. Make no mistake, it's to risk, risk exposure. To have compassion like Jesus is to enter into our neighbor's darkness, to be affected by their pain, to be willing to help them carry their burden, and as Jesus says, go the extra mile. And we may say, well, where, where do we find that? Where does that compassion come from? And I, I'm, I'm a broken record here. I'm repeating something I said last week because it's true. If we're wondering where does this compassion of Christ come from, here it is. Honest, selfless prayer fills us with compassion. Let me say that again. Honest, selfless prayer. Honest, selfless. Selfless meaning it's not about you. 
It's not about you praying for what you want and what you need. It's actually opening up and praying and saying, God, what do you want? What do you need? Where are you calling me and who are you calling me to? I'm gonna tell you something. When you begin to get it and practice honest, selfless prayer, you will find compassion. The compassion of Christ. When we bring the hardness of our heart for others, when we bring the logs in our own eyes before Jesus in prayer, it's amazing, but not surprising, how his love overwhelms us and gets us to move. Compassion comes from listening to the Lord in prayer, but compassion also wells up within us when we listen to our neighbors. When we listen to their stories, when we listen to what their life is like, when we listen to how the Lord is already knocking at the door of their lives, we are moved to turn the handle, to remove the obstacles. The thing is, prayer, listening, don't lose this part. Compassion always leads to action. Biblically, compassion always leads to action, to something, a cup of cold water, a hot meal, a place to stay, a regular visit just to see if they're doing okay, an offer to help them get where they need to go. Compassion biblically always leads to action, to doing something for a person in need, our neighbor in need. And here it is, Christ-like compassion in whatever form it takes, remember, is always about giving life, resurrection life to another person, to our neighbor who's barely hanging on, and if you want to know if you're sharing resurrection life, the flavor of it is sins are forgiven. When we share the resurrection life of, Je of Jesus, sins are forgiven. When we share the resurrection life of Jesus, kinship, family is restored. When we share the resurrection life of Jesus, justice is done. When we share the resurrection life of Jesus, violence is met with peace. When we share the resurrection life of Jesus, eternity is not communicated. Going to heaven is not communicated as an escape hatch from reality, but eternity is communicated as the eventual transformation of our lives and of creation as it was always intended to be. The red-hot center of this story, the red-hot center of Jesus, the red-hot center of this sermon is Christ-like compassion. We need to hear that. We need to experience it. We need to let it well up inside us to a point where we just can't help ourselves and it just comes out because there are moments in life when we meet at crossroads. There are moments in life when we meet at a crossroads. Living together in this world, the paths that we walk on often intersect with other people, our neighbors. And such intersections are not to be viewed by us as obstacles to avoid or challenges to ignore. Meeting another person at the crossroads of life is a divine opportunity to help someone in need. Because the truth is, this whole season of Lent, what we're building towards is another story, isn't it? Another story of an only son whose mother mourns his death. Another story, the story of an only son whose mother mourns his death that teaches us everything we need to know about this resurrection life, and it's the story of Jesus Christ. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, confronts us, touches our lives, and speaks those words, do not cry, but rise, get up. Jesus confronts us, touches our lives, speaks those words, rise, do not cry, and suddenly everything changes, doesn't it? We don't go back to life the way it was, do we? Our funeral-like existences become festivals. 
lives of meaning and purpose, filled with joy as we are invited into the miracle of an abundant, good, and eternal life that doesn't begin tomorrow, but that can begin today. And this, that we're given, this resurrection life, it's given not just for us, it's given for us to share in loving our neighbors like Jesus. So, people of the resurrection, may we heed the Lord's call Heed the Lord's call in not running away from the walking dead, but towards them. To those who believe they are dead already, to those who act like they're already deceased, let us give life, the life we have been given in Christ, the life we experience through the Holy Spirit, the life that is everlasting with the compassion of Christ. Amen. Amen.